Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Aquan Lau. He is Principal Investigator for the Laboratory for Consciousness at Riken Institute in Japan. He works on the neural mechanisms of conscious perception, attention, and sensory metacognition using human fMRI and Bayesian computational modeling. And today we're going to focus our conversation on his book, In Consciousness We Trust, The Cognitive Neuroscience of Subjective Experience. So, Dr. Lau, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, um, getting into the book, I would like to start by asking you one specific question about how you approach consciousness here. So, because uh, even across the years I've been talking a few times with scientists and philosophers on the show about consciousness. And uh, as far as I understand, there are many different scientific and philosophical approaches to it out there. So why is it that you focus on cognitive neuroscience? Yeah, maybe before I answer that, I can first, first of all say that the purpose of the book is really written for researchers. So mm -hmm. I just don't want to set up for, for this appointment. So it's really not the kind of book that's written for a general audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that in, in part kind of decides what kind of approach I want to take. I think if you want to have some interesting ideas about consciousness, there are very many ways to do that. And some can be philosophical, some can be metaphysical, whatever. But if you are interested in actually doing scientific research, I think it, to my mind, it becomes, it narrows down your options. I mean, because there are many other ways that wouldn't really go anywhere. Um, the reason why we would say we use a cognitive neuroscience approach is just to say, basically, we use a standard approach. If you want to understand any sort of brain and, and psychological phenomena these days. So that's the, just a standard mainstream scientific approach to, to understand brain and behavior and cognition is just to basically take the analogies from uh, computer science and electrical engineering, take those concepts and try to figure out how the brain process, processes information. Um, so concepts like memory, signal, um, channels, you know, noise and um, signal to noise ratio, all these like concepts from signal processing and computer science. And, and we just figure out how, how the brain does a certain function um, at a at a kind of software level uh, or mm -hmm. algorithmic level, and then figure out the computations, and then figure out what's the hardware that implements that computation. And that's pretty much um, all our current knowledge of of, of uh, neuroscience and how the brain works is based on. So if you want to take some other approach, that's fine. You it just you you might be <laughs> less likely to find anything useful there. Mm -hmm. uh, but talking about <clears throat> other approaches and focusing first on other scientific approaches, I mean, it's interesting uh, in the book you go through several of them, but it's interesting to me that you mention uh, physics and how certain physicists, uh, theoretical physicists, have also tried to tackle the issue of consciousness or consciousness from the physics a physical perspective, I would say. So uh, wh uh, what would you say are some of the issues of trying to tackle consciousness from a physics-centric perspective? 
I think, yeah, maybe an analogy will help. It's, it's similar to saying that if you're a physicist and you want to understand um, the economy, you can also just say, well, let's not read any basic textbooks of economics and just, you know, sit down and write some equations and try to understand the economy. I think the chances of success is very low there. Uh, likewise, in fact, I think in most disciplines, I think over the past, especially the past half centuries, we realized that a lot of these disciplines are, they have their own, they need their own approach. I think historically it has been kind of unfortunate because physics has been such a marvelous success. Mm -hmm. And I think some people mistook physics as a general approach that can be used to study everything. Um, you basically can't. I mean, the, the idea is that it's not to say that these things are not physical, uh, but just because it is physical doesn't mean that physics is the right tool, is the right level of description. So a physicist, for example, also wouldn't understand computer software uh, better than a computer scientist. I mean, it's not to say that the software is not run on some ultimately physical substrate. It is, but but if you want to understand software engineering, you need to study software engineering. You can't just start and, and, and assume that some fundamental physics would help you understand how, like, how blockchain works or how, how cryptography works. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. But do you think it is just because of some uh, theoretical limitations or limitations in terms of the knowledge we have or is it or do you look at consciousness really uh, through an emergentist perspective and do you think we can't really reduce it and uh, I mean not just consciousness but I would imagine other psychological phenomena and social phenomena to physics uh, yeah I'm, I'm not sure I yeah I'm not sure it's something so deep I so I don't I don't disagree that it of course ultimately it probably is reducible uh, some people don't think so but I think at least the evidence isn't so strong that it would wouldn't mm -hmm. be reducible I think it's just yeah. like any other emergent phenomena that that ultimately is not that it violates physics. But the fact that it doesn't violate physics doesn't mean that you can use the tools and approach of physics to understand it either. So like the, the economy and, and other, other psychological phenomena, any social phenomena, you want to understand how society works. Yeah, ultimately society consists of people and people consist of atoms and you know molecules and stuff but it doesn't mean that that is the right level of description to understand the, the problem so going straight to that level i think it just seems very deeply misguided uh it's not just for consciousness i think it's for any other for many other phenomena likewise even for biology i think in i think that the illusion is that because in, in much of chemistry it looks like that you can reduce to physics pretty well and, and physicists in fact have won Nobel prizes in, in those areas. But I think the, the problem is that as you, as you move further into a more high level emergent phenomena, then the, the, the more inappropriate or inadequate a physics approach would, would, would seem. And, and there's just so much details and you can't just skipping it all through and just going straight to physics is a, is a pretty misguided approach, I think. Mm -hmm. And what do you think uh, is the role that philosophy can play when trying to understand consciousness? Um, I used to be more more positive about it. I think you know it's a new field, and and, and it's a field that has some conceptual issues that are mm, 
maybe make it slightly more challenging than, than the rest mm -hmm. of psychology. And right. so philosophers could help to clarify these terms and point out some of the problems and limits of approaches and you know do some sort of constructive analysis. But I have gotten more frustrated over, about it over time. I think they also sometimes play a less than constructive role there. Um, so uh, focusing now on the more neo neuroscientific and psychological side of things, I guess, uh, there are many different uh, or several different notions of consciousness out there. You go through some of them in the book. Uh, I would like to ask you, why do you think we should focus specifically on subjective experience? Because there's also, for example, notions focusing on wakefulness, voluntary control, and so on. So why subjective experience specifically? I think in a way, in a way, it's, um, one, one, one way to say it is that well, there, there's no need to focus on only one. You can study any of them as you like. And some people do study the different notions of them. So traditionally in social sciences, the notion of automatic versus controlled uh, processes is mm -hmm. very important. Yeah. And I think some people, if you're a clinician, you might be really interested in why sometimes people are awake and sometimes they are not. So the, those different notions of consciousness are, are important. But I think the, the the nature of subjective experience is supposed to be one of the more challenging and conceptually challenging problem. Because as I said, if you want to use a standard scientific approach to understand the brain, and that I take is the cognitive science or cognitive neuroscience approach, you try to think of it as a machine and how it processes information, um, then it becomes kind of hard to see how a machine that processes information can have subjective experience. So that is kind of like conceptually the most challenging problem. And I think that has been the consensus in the active research field. And so, and that just happens to be also what, what captures, what, what grabs my attention. And so I, I, I chose to study it. But it doesn't mean that it's more important than other problems. I mean, other people, if they so like, they can choose other other aspects of it. Just, I think the most important is we distinguish what problems we're attacking. And in fact, it's quite disappointing that it's quite rampant in the field that people lump these different notions of consciousness together. Even when they say that they're distinguishing them, they actually often lump them together. Uh, uh, but I mean, uh, theoretically speaking, uh, lumping them together perhaps is not a good approach, at least in your opinion, but I mean, consciousness is uh, not just about subjective experience, right? I mean, all the other uh, aspects of our psychology that uh, play some sort of a role in consciousness, uh, I, I mean, we also have to understand them in order to perhaps someday have a full understanding of how consciousness works. Yeah, Correct. yeah, I think that's right. I think I think all of these are important, but I, when I mean lumping them together, mm -hmm. maybe I can give a more specific example. Okay. If your theory is decidedly about subjective experience, mm -hmm. when you evaluate your theory, you shouldn't take those evidence about you know the other phenomena, which is okay. basically distinct, and and then use it as evidence to support your theory. But the, what happens is in the field, actually, if you think about it, it happens very often, extremely frequently, when people say that they distinguish the different notions and usually they mm -hmm. give a talk and then they will very clearly define the different notions and then they 
intend the theory to be about subjective experience. But then once it comes to evidence, they would grab any evidence they can get, even though the evidence clearly is about a different phenomena, and they would still, you know, grab those evidence as if it supports that theory. And, and I think that obviously is logically bad. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and uh, you distinguish in the book, uh, and I think that people in the field more generally distinguish between global versus local theories of uh, consciousness. And you, I think, set them as a theoretical goalposts. Goal so uh, could you tell us what uh, are global and local theories, what basically distinguishes them? Yeah, basically... There are very many theories in the field to the point that is quite obvious to myself and many others that is really unhealthy. I mean, you shouldn't have that many theories when you don't have that much data, especially the quality of the data often is quite lacking. So, so these theories become very interesting to listen to almost like children's stories and they're not very serious sometimes. And, and to, so in, instead of going to, into each theory and, and talk about who said what, when, and, and, yeah. and create this list, I think it's easy is would be more handy if you just kind of summarize the field in very broad stroke. Okay. Um, and of course, when you do this kind of summary, you lose a lot of the important details, but sometimes you have to, you know, choose a, a level that, that is useful for you. And so global theories are theories that said that when you're conscious, your whole brain is pretty much involved. Many areas mm -hmm. of the brain are involved, including those areas of the brain that are not specific to one sensory modality. So we know that in the brain, let's say you talk about vision, there are parts of the brain that are specific for vision, and there are some areas that seem to be not so specific for vision. Mm -hmm. So the idea of this global theory is that all of these areas would be involved in some way when you're really conscious of a piece of information. And, and accordingly, then, then consciousness will be associated with some sort of you know, global and coordinated processing that, that would be reasonably sophisticated. And then the local folks basically say the opposite. They would just say, you know, when you're conscious of a visual piece of information, then it's just the visual areas that are, that, that are involved, that are not just that is involved, but that is, that is really what is necessary for you to have conscious experiences. So if you fail to go to these more global, uh, higher order brain regions, that's fine. Then you may not have attention. You may not have control, you may not have access, but you, you, you already have the subjective experience. So the subjective experience happens when, when the information is registered locally within the visual circuits in the right way. And then different variants would say, what is the right way? Some would say it's recurrent, some would say it's you know, certain areas, etc. And so you can see that these are kind of two polar opposites of different camps of theories. And then once you see it that way, then you you can just bypass talking about the individual theories because everyone wants to have their own theories and not every theory is kind of very um, detailed, sometimes more detailed than the data are. Mm -hmm. So so then allows you to basically, let's not talk about the theories, but just talk about this overall landscape and see where we stand. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's uh, a very prominent line of research in consciousness that has to do with the neurocorrelates of consciousness. So what is this line of research all about? What are people trying to tackle there? Well, I think the idea is exactly um, kind of similar to what I was saying, like because there are so many theories and so many ideas, 
And some of them are not even within this realm of cognitive neuroscience. Some of them are pretty metaphysically abstract and, and, and et cetera. So I think about what now, so like three decades ago, people came around and, and said, well, let's set aside those like really lofty theoretical debates for now. Let's just at least figure out what happens in the brain when people are conscious in the sense of having subjective experience. So when you have a subjective experience, let's say a visual experience, compared to when you don't have that subjective experience, what's the difference in the brain uh, that you can just document and, and describe without thinking about of theories? And the idea, of course, is once you collect these data, then, then you know what is the neural correlates of consciousness, of subjective experience, then you can eventually um, try, to, try to use these data to constrain or to test the theories. But the idea basically is, let's, let's not talk about theory for now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's at least find out empirically just what are the neural um, um, activities that would distinguish between conscious and non-conscious processing. Okay, and so what do you think, uh, in what ways do you think this line of research can contribute for us to get a better understanding of how consciousness works? Uh, basically, what kind of information can we get from it well you can already see like if you if you couch the theories in the way that i talk about global and local mm -hmm. part of the predictions depends on where things are right where where activities are in the brain uh when you're conscious so the global folks would say that it, it would involve activities in these kind of um higher order brain areas that are not specific to sensory modalities. So by just looking at the neural correlate, you can use it to arbitrate between global and local theories in principle. So that, that's pretty handy. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, uh, within the neural correlates of consciousness line of research, uh, what do we know about the role of the prefrontal cortex, for example? So this is the interesting part of the book, and that's why I said this is not a book written for a general audience. Mm -hmm. Because within the research literature, you might think that this was so straightforward, right? Either the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex is or is not part of the neural correlate. But wow. in fact, the controversy is crazy. Uh, I think the prefrontal cortex is very clearly involved. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, in the book, we went into quite a lot of details. But then there are also very prominent scholars who are very influential in the field who denied that. And, and so I think they're just wrong. I think they're just sometimes factually blatantly wrong. But that having said that, you know, this is the situation of the literature. If you go into the literature, you will find a pretty convoluted mess. So, so I don't know what to say. If, if you're a researcher, I can tell you what are the papers and who are the people who are not doing things right. But if you're just, a, if you're interested in, you know, some some soundbite that would tell you what is the state of the knowledge. The state of the knowledge is is a mess. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I mean, uh, since we mentioned here local theories versus global theories of consciousness, do you think that uh, the way uh, what we know about the role that the prefrontal cortex might might play there versus the rest of the brain uh, might be informative when it comes to the limitations of uh, both approaches? Yes, so, so if you, you know, 
take what I said with a pinch of salt. This is not an established fact in the literature mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the literature really, no. frankly, is a mess. But if you are interested in getting to the bottom of it in the book, I talk about the, the various um, issues involved in, in, in deciding whether some, some claims in the literature is actually true or not true, okay. whether they did the experiments right, et cetera. If you follow that entire review, then if you, you know, follow, if you, if you accept what I said, then at least the, the, my take is the prefrontal cortex is very clearly involved. So mm -hmm. first of all, it is part of the neural correlates, but it is not quite like what the global theory said. It's not like it's involved in, in helping to broadcast or, or um, amplify the signal. It's involved in some sort of, some, some type of monitoring that is much more subtle. So it, when you're conscious, it's not like you always have more prefrontal activity, mm -hmm. but when you are conscious, the prefrontal cortex somehow helps to register the activity as conscious for you. And, and the detailed mechanism is something we're still working on, but I think it, essentially we, the, the data seems to be something exactly right in between the local and global views. So the local view seems to be wrong because the prefrontal cortex clearly is involved, but the global view also seems to be not quite right because it's not like this include, is involved in a way to broadcast their activity mm -hmm. everywhere. It seems to be doing something much more specific and subtle. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, within uh, neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience more specifically, uh, there are two different kinds of studies that people point to a lot, uh, like lesion studies and stimulation studies, for example. So, could you tell us about examples of these types of studies and what they can tell us about consciousness? Yeah, so the standard intuitive take is that these studies are extremely important, and I think they are, mm -hmm. but the they also come with some limitations that makes interpreting them very difficult. Okay. And, and this is a, again, this is why the book went into so much of it. If you're not a researcher in the field, you may not care. You want the answer might be, you think, oh, this would be something, but actually it's much more complicated because, so the traditional view is that if, if an area is involved in certain function, if you lesion mm -hmm. the area, then the function should be abolished. Right. That's a kind of a view that some people will hold, but immediately you should see that it's not as simple as that. Because in biological systems, there are redundancy in functions or, or sometimes they call degeneracy, which is a more subtle notion that is similar to redundancy. But essentially there are some sort of things that are not exactly like backup system, but they are sort of like backup systems in a way. It's like you have two legs, right? So if you, if you, if you injure one of your legs, you have the other one can still work. So in, if, you, if you're an insect, you have many legs, mm -hmm. then just even like taking out some of the legs of an insect, the insect can still move around. Um, so if you just lesion one area, but the area is actually only part of the mechanism and there are other parts of the um, mechanism that can actually um, take over some of the functions, Mm -hmm. then you have a situation where lesioning an area does not abolish the function, but it doesn't mean that that area does not contribute to the function. So mm -hmm. another analogy, you can think of computers, so mo many modern computers have multiple CPU chips, right? So if you take out one of them, in fact, it might not cause any noticeable drop in, your, in, in the efficiency of, of doing a task uh, unless, you're, unless you're at full capacity. So I have a computer server here that has many 
many core CPUs. And if you take out some of them, unless you are running some really demanding task, the computer might be just doing it just as well. But it will be wrong to conclude that those CPUs are not contributing. They are contributing. It's just that they are, they are, they are not exactly at the limit. And so that's a major problem when you try to understand these lesion studies because to a computer is a good analogy because you can think of lesioning another area of the computer. You can take out some other things that would just completely shut down the computer. Let's say you take out the power supply. Right. The whole computer would stop running or you just cut the power cord, right? Then the whole computer would stop running. But it would be wrong to conclude that all the computations are done in the power cord or in, in the power, power supply. Mm -hmm. Power supply and power cord actually is much less interesting regarding the mechanism, but it's just a much more vulnerable point. And then there are other points that might be actually much more interesting and directly relevant for the, for the mechanism, but they're just not as vulnerable because there are some sort of pseudo redundancy there. So interpreting lesion is just very hard mm -hmm. in general. Um, and then on top of that, because we are quite often talking about human uh, brains and mm -hmm. you can't just go and lesion people's brains in, in whatever way you like. So right. we're waiting for these naturally occurring lesions and so the, the patients that have the exact right lesions are very rare. And of, often we talk about single cases and sometimes these cases are just factually mis, misreported. Um, so in the book, we talk about some of these cases, um, mm -hmm. some of the, again, very high leading, we're not talking about beginners who make these mistakes. We're talking about leading scholars who are yeah. as influential as it gets. They sometimes would end up saying things that are just not quite right by textbook standards in the literature. And because there are so few of these cases, it's very hard to correct them. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very hard. So, so that's part of the reason why some people think that the prefrontal cortex is not involved in, in conscious perception, because they would think about some of these individual cases and they would say that the brain is lesioned and then conscious perception is not affected. These claims are typically wrong on, on multiple levels. <laughs> Usually they are actually, there are patients that are actually affected, but it's just that the effects might be more subtle. You have to actually find the right ways to uncover mm -hmm. them. And sometimes the lesions are not complete. They're not bilateral. They are usually not. And so, so you have to look for the cases where they are really lesioned in the right way. And, and, and so just very hard to go through the details in the literature in a, in a in a simple way. So, but but if, you, if you follow the book, which we try to do it as systematically as we can, the answer is it seems like lesion does affect perception, um, a conscious perception specifically. So that's lesion. Um, mm -hmm. The other yes. kind of study is stimulation, which is, you might think it's a similar kind of causal inference, right? You can, mm -hmm. you can again, tamper with something in, in the brain. And usually they are slightly better. They're less crude as um, lesion, but they, you have the similar problem. So some parts of your circuit might be easier to tamper with. Um, so again, the computer analogy might be useful. If I want to cause some effect in my computer, the most easy part of the computer that I can, you know, cause some effect would be the keyboard, right? If I type, if I type some, some you know, hit some buttons on my keyboard, I can see my screen changes. So I can see why well, this is a very uh, causally relevant part of my computer. It's true, and, and, and if you go to open up my, my computer and try to use a you know, screwdriver and try to tap with different parts of the chipsets and stuff, you may not cost much un unless you tap it really hard, then you just break the computer. If you just you know, try to 
try to tap the different parts of the computer, it may not cause any effect. And the reason is not because the, com the computer CPU is not doing something that is much more interesting than the, than the, than the keyboard. It's just because the, the layout of the keyboard is just physically easier to tamper with. Whereas the computer chipset might be in a such a way that is actually not designed to, for you to actually to, to mess with it, right? So I think we have a similar problem here. So some parts of the brain is easy to stimulate a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And that led to the, I think, illusory impression that those are the part of the brain that, that is important. They may not be. They might just be the physical layout that allow you to more easily tamper with it. And there are parts of the brain that might be just harder to stimulate to, to create an effect because we don't know how to play that instrument. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not doing something important. So both of these approaches of lesion and stimulation are very important, but it's just interpreting it requires some thinking that is more than more than so someone would so intuitively think mm -hmm. so please correct me if i'm wrong and i'm not completely sure if this discussion also applies here specifically but when it comes to understanding uh, how different for example cognitive mechanisms operate in the brain uh, there's been this uh, tradition of having a localizationist approach of trying to uh, piece out the several different areas of the brain and uh, identifying or, or correlating them to specific cognitive functions. I mean, just in extremely simplistic terms, saying, for example, that the amygdala is the fear center or something like that. And of course, sometimes when, when information is communicated uh, through mainstream media and to the general public, it gets even more simplistic and uh, there's this idea that uh, the uh, certain specific functions are circumscribed to particular areas of the brain and they do not really communicate uh, with other areas. So do you think that uh, this kind of thinking is also relevant here and perhaps localizationist approaches to the brain that also I think in a way connect to uh, modular approaches to the brain uh, might play a, a role here? Or, uh, I, I think so. I, I think they are, they are relevant. I think there are two problems here. So I think everybody knows that the, everyone should know that the, the, the localization view is a simplification. Okay. Right. Things mm -hmm. are, things move things move around mm -hmm. and, and the activity, they're dynamic, they're all connected. But I think that just because it's a simplification doesn't mean it's wrong, right? So you can also talk about Portugal as a country, for example, mm -hmm. and that's where most Portuguese people live. Well, yeah, but Portuguese people also move around and then they, you know, the border historically, the border of Portugal changed and Macau, Asia used to be part of Portugal and now it's not. So you can talk about the complexity and the dynamic interactions and the and the changing yeah. details. But but it shouldn't stop you from still using a simplified notion of Portugal. When you say Portugal, people know what it means, okay. even though there are many little details that need to be qualified, right? We talk about Portugal today and then the sovereignty and, and all these like little details. So I think that, so, so the local is, the localization modular view is decidedly incomplete, but is maybe a pretty useful simplification still. But when it comes to even accepting that view, there are still mm -hmm. other problems in just what kind of tools you can use to establish these localization effects. 
Okay, uh, and so uh, since we were talking uh, just a minute ago about lesions and stimulation, of course, uh, historically within neuroscience, there are also studies that have been done on uh, patients, people that have gone through uh, some, uh, op uh, some procedures to remove parts of their brains because they were suffering from different uh, medical conditions. Uh, uh, could you tell us, for example, what do you think about the Michael Gazzaniga's experiments? Because supposedly they tell us something about how, uh, about consciousness. They do. They are historically um, important cases. So these are by today's standard, I mean, it's not Mike's fault. I mean, and Mike didn't design those experiments. He just yeah. tapped into those patients. Right. But those are epileptic patients that sometimes get the whole corpus callosum or large part of the corpus callosum cut off. So basically mm -hmm. the, the, the fibers that connect the two hemispheres, sometimes they're mm -hmm. just, just severed. Um, and, and that led to some interesting effects. And, but today we would consider that kind of procedure pretty crude and they're not being done a lot anymore. So that, that's uh, maybe the outset. So they, they, mm -hmm. they do tell us a lot, but they don't tell us as much as we like to these days because now we have better tools. But what those studies tell us is sometimes there seems to be information that go pretty deep into our brain's processing, and yet people are not conscious of them. So I think that's uh, maybe the simple answer. There are details about those studies. I'm sure that Joe Ladu would have told you in, in his interview with you. So he was involved in some of those studies. Some of them are amazing. So you have, sometimes you have people who basically confabulate, clearly have the information. They will confabulate, they would do things, they would make guesses and explanation that basically gave away the fact that they know some answer. They, they have seen, in a way the brain has seen some pictures, but then they deny seeing them. They would say that they don't see them. So mm -hmm. clearly if it goes to one of the hemispheres that somehow didn't get to the stage of conscious reporting, they would say they would, the subjects I think would truly think that they don't know the information, but the information is actually in the brain all the same. And I think that is something you would know from um, those split brain patients, mm -hmm. but you also know from some sort of amnesia uh, or blindside patients. So there are many classic neuropsychological um, phenomena where, where some sort of brain lesion would cause people to have similar, uh, would show similar phenomena. They, they seem to have some information in the brain that they, they are not conscious of. Uh, but do, what do you think about the conclusion that Gazzaniga and, for example, Joseph Ledoux, I think, also came to the same conclusion when it comes to the interpret, interpretative theory of consciousness? The, I, I mean, do you think that they might be right in a way? Because here we are also trying to, I guess, understand what is the function, what functions does consciousness play in our psychology more generally? And in this case, they point to an interpretative function. Do, do you think, what do you think about it? I, I think it's largely right. Yeah, I think it's just that, uh, I think given the, the crudeness of those, you know, the, the nature of that kind of lesion, mm -hmm. and I think that they, they have gone like, amazingly far with, with, with that and, and, and learned a lot from that. It's just that I think that the, 
now that we also have more data, so the, the, the theoretical view should also up be updated accordingly. Okay. But I think largely they are in the right direction, and, and my view is actually very similar to them. When I when I said that the prefrontal cortex seems to be involved in some sort of subtle monitoring, I think it is not that different from what they say. And they, they likewise, I don't think it's consciousness, it's not just a matter of having information going everywhere in the brain. So they are, I think they are likewise, you can also consider them to be somewhere in the middle between a local and global view. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's get then a little bit more into the functions of consciousness, or at least the ones that you think we have possibly identified, or the ones you think we are probably in the right direction of identifying, I guess. So what is attention from a cognitive neuroscientific perspective, and how does it relate to consciousness? So attention is usually, I mean, sometimes people will criticize it's a pretty loose term and people use it differently. That is true, but I think roughly what they mean is that attention is a mechanism for filtering out some information, uh, stopping them from being processed further and allowing some other selected information to be processed further. Right. And that can, could happen, you know, passively, um, as in, um, you don't have you don't have to pay you know exercise uh, effort to, to do that because like information kind of sort itself out in, in some ways. So if I just like suddenly uh, clap my hand very loudly, it already drags your attention towards it, even if you don't volitionally control it. But then there's also voluntarily controlled attention where you just pay attention to something and ignore other. So traditionally, people think that attention and consciousness are highly related. So when you pay attention, you're conscious. When you don't pay attention, you're less likely to be conscious of the um, relevant information. So much so that I think up to like almost like two decades ago, people would, were claiming that any dissociation between them is, is, a, is a remarkable phenomenon. So sometimes you can have uh, consciousness that is subjective experience in the lack of attention, or sometimes you have attention and yet you're not fully conscious. Some people would not find it just amazing. But I think over time, people have come to realize that that's nothing too amazing about it because attention is kind of like the cause yeah. of consciousness, which is the, 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 the occurrence of the subjective experience. So sometimes a cause does not lead to an effect. And sometimes an effect can be, you know, can arise due to other causes. So the, so the dissociation is actually conceptually not, not something so, so complicated. Um, so, so people generally dissociate between the two. And I think the more remarkable fact is that sometimes you don't pay attention, you actually would almost have an inflated sense of subjective experience. Mm -hmm. So that happens a lot when you are, um, think about your everyday peripheral vision, for example. Mm -hmm. So usually you pay, you pay attention to the center and the periphery is not like you have a more subjective experience, but your subjective experience in the peripheral may be less deserved in some ways. You don't have a lot of information, but somehow your subjective experience does not fade away in the periphery. Yeah. So in a sense, you think that even though you don't pay attention to the periphery, there is some sort of inflation in the periphery going on. It, it, you, you seem to be aware of more than you deserve to in the periphery. You, you think that you see color in the periphery, but you, you don't really see that much color. You see a bit of it, but in some sense, your, your, your experience there is inflated. Mm -hmm. So um, what is consciousness 
good for them? Uh, are there specific functions that it serves? Yeah, so it's following the, host, the same theme of the book, it might be frustrating to some, to some people. <laughs> I, the answer is, is not clear. I mean, okay. so that's why it, I didn't choose to, to write a book in, in a, in a, in a, in a what, they, what they call a trade book fashion, because I don't mm -hmm. have the answer to profess, but okay. I, I have a lot of problems to, to raise. Um, so a lot of people would just claim that consciousness is good for X, Y, Z. Quite often, the empirical evidence is not there. So that's why the book is really written by a researcher for researchers. Mm -hmm. I just, the, the whole point is that we need to think more carefully about this. So usually when they say consciousness is good for X, what they mean is when you introspect and consciously you, you do things and you're, you, you can do this. So let's say consciousness is good for controlling yourself, being, being aware, being, having subjective experience for some relevant perceptual information can inform you how to control yourself. Well, yeah, that's true, but but we are not non-conscious, right? So we don't, we have to think about whether the non-conscious cases, uh, what it does, and, and that obviously would not be available to your introspection because you cannot introspect what is non-conscious. Mm -hmm. And typically in order to create these non-conscious cases, you, you would do something to the brain to, to make the information processing really weak. So you use some sort of, um, you, you present the information very briefly, or you stimulate the brain, or you, you, you give drug to the subjects, or you, you do something to make a process non-conscious. But when you do that, you typically basically just knock out the information. Mm -hmm. So you're not really talking about whether the subjective experience itself has a cause. You're quite often comparing a very big signal versus a very small signal. Mm -hmm. So the, the non-conscious, it's very difficult to find a case where you have a very strong non-conscious signal. So whatever people say, well, when you're not conscious, you cannot do these amazing functions. Maybe what they're seeing is that, well, when you don't have a lot of signal, you can't do these functions, and that would be completely trivial. So doing the experiment is actually very hard. Uh, you need to find cases where you have very strong non-conscious processing, and that's just very difficult to do. And so in one of the chapters in my book, we, we reviewed that literature, and basically the answer is not very clear. So we speculate that there might be something we can speculate, but I'm, yeah, maybe we don't need to speculate here. I think if you, if you, if you read the book, there's some speculation. I think consciousness might be in, important for response inhibition and maybe important for monitoring uh, your, the success of your own processes. But the evidence basically is very much lacking. The strong evidence very much lacking. But do you think that at least we can say that, or to, uh, with some level of certainty, I guess, that a consciousness has some sort of causal power over cognition and behavior? I'm asking you this because there are people who make the claim, some philosophers, for example, that consciousness is simply epiphenomenal. Yeah, I, I know that they do that, but I, I think it depends on what you mean by consciousness. If you okay. really mean the pure subjective experience that is to be defined in a way that is just pure, then of course, yeah, then it could be epiphenomenal. But if you follow this, discussion so far, so, so long, we're we are taking a cognitive neuroscience approach. We're not really talking about there's something called consciousness that can live on top and above some neuroprocessing. Rather, we're saying that, well, some neuroprocesses are conscious. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And some neural processes are not conscious in the sense that some neural processes are seem to come with certain kind of subjective feelings and some neural processes don't come with um, subjective feelings. So we want to talk about the difference between these two kinds of processes. And of course, they're almost by definition, because they are processes, they would have some functional differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are different parts of the brain, they, 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 they use different circuits and mechanisms, so there would be some differences. So I think that almost like by the, the way that the, the problem is being described, you would find that consciousness, that is the neural processes that are that come with subjective experiences, they would have some functions, but it has been very difficult to pin down what exactly they are. Okay, uh, so earlier we talked about uh, global versus local theories of consciousness. Uh, what about a centrist approach to it? Is there one out there? I mean, what do you think would make for a plausible theory of, uh, or, a, or a plausible centrist approach to consciousness? Well, we just talked about the um, the kind of interpreter approach, right? Mm -hmm. So from Gassaniger, I think it. it I think they would agree that this is a relatively old view, but I think some of the, the basic concepts seem to be right. So mm -hmm. when you're conscious, it seems like that the brain involves some sort of self-monitoring okay. that allows you to interpret what's going on mm -hmm. and recognize that you're doing certain things. And I think that roughly that type of approach, I think seems to be right. That's a, that's a centrist approach that seems to be right. Yeah. And what do you think we can learn, if anything, about consciousness from AI research? I think it's extremely important um, because if you're a cognitive neuroscientist, you've basically tried to flesh out the, your views in terms of computation. Mm -hmm. And so current AI is actually using these same language and concepts and, and they're building models that actually seem to be getting closer and closer to human cognition. So that in a sense is very useful. And I think it's also very useful because it really forces us to think through the, what consciousness is as a mechanism. Um, I think our intuitively, we tend not to do that, right? So when we say that animals are conscious, mm -hmm. For example, we, we usually just because it looks conscious, we don't really think about what it is that the animal does and in the brain and what kind of computations and, and, and processes there are in the brain that makes them conscious. We don't really think very deeply about this, I think. So by thinking about AI, we are forcing ourselves to think about those things in more computational terms. And then the next time we think that this animal is conscious, we should then ask ourselves, well, in what way, which, 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 what kind of algorithms, what kind of computations is done, being done in the brain that allows the animal to be conscious. I think if we do that, we'll be much better off. So could you tell us about the perceptual reality monitoring theory of consciousness? What is it? I could talk about it a little bit, but okay. I, as I kind of where I'm, I'm not a big fan of theories in general, including my own. Uh, I think the field has way too many theories, too many people are too obsessed with, you know, promoting the big ideas. I think it's, it has been damaging to the field. So when I wrote my book, um, I shared my drafts around and one of my friends who's a philosopher asked me like, why do you only talk about your theory in chapter seven? I said, well, because I almost don't even want to talk about it 
in chapter seven. In fact, I, so the theory has played a very little role uh, in my in my outlook. I I dabbled in theories because I originally come from philosophy, actually. Mm-hmm. So I so I know some of that, and I you can think of the perceptual reality monitoring theory as just not a novel theory at all. Okay. Uh, in fact, I rather I, I like the fact that it's not a particularly novel theory. It's just a way to describe uh, a more traditional theory, this called higher order theory, in somewhat computational terms. Mm-hmm. So I basically just took a philosophy theory that I think seems to be right, and that is also very close to the interpretive theory. So all of these theories, I think, instead of thinking of them, everyone trying to stick the name in the literature and say, this is my theory, this is your theory. I think let's just think of them as one cluster of theories. These are all similar. They all said that consciousness is about some kind of implicit self-monitoring. It's about some kind of self-monitoring that does not require effort. It's not like I'm monitoring myself. It's, it's some part of your brain that seems to be monitoring the ongoing uh, perceptual processes. So that's common in higher order theory, perceptual reality monitoring theory, and, and interpretive theory. And perceptual reality monitoring theory just tried to describe it in more modern computational terms. So essentially, you can link it to some AI um, vocabularies and describe mm-hmm. it that way. But it kind of said the same thing. So we, it's not important we go into the details almost. Okay. Uh, but uh, earlier we talked briefly about AI research and you also mentioned very briefly uh, uh, the, the consciousness of other animals. So uh, do you think that uh, this theory could have any implications as to how we approach animal consciousness? And more generally, I mean, if you don't want to approach the question through this theory specifically, Uh, what do you think is, uh, or how do you think we should approach animal consciousness and study it? Yeah, so that's something my view has changed a little bit since I wrote the book. Um, I think it's gotten clearer. So I think, in principle, once you have these theories, mm-hmm. and once the theories become very well established, yeah. if the theory is sufficiently empirically supported, given how, how it works in humans, how it works in you know, obvious cases that the theory seems to hold up, then you should be able to generalize from the theory. So let's say the theory says you know, you're conscious when you have this particular type of neural activity that does this particular type of computation. Okay, the theory sets that, and then you tested that theory and established that in human. You should be able to generalize it to other animals. Right. So this is how, right. why, why, why theories are good for, or one reason what, what theories are good for. Once you establish a theory, you generalize. So you should be able to use that to directly say uh, what happens in animals. The problem is none of the theories are anywhere close to being established. And it's, the situation seems to be getting worse every year I've been in the field. So there are more and more theories, and the theories are becoming more and more crazy, more speculative, and people seem to just want to say what they want to believe instead of want to actually test the theories. Again, they would say that they're testing the theories, but if you follow my analysis, I would say that they are basically not. Uh, so the theories are just so weak that I think it's, it's just not worth trying to say that you generalize from these theories. So if anything, thinking about animal consciousness almost helped to constrain these theories, because if the theories are saying something that is obviously crazy, 
if a theory sets up my, you know, your teacup is conscious, you should just get rid of the theory already. Like instead of saying, oh, my theory is right because my theory is correct and because my theory says the teacup is conscious, let's accept that the teacup is conscious. I think that is just quite foolish given how weak these theories are right now. If the theories are very good, maybe you are in a position to do that, but the, the theories are not very good. None of them are very good. Um, so to, to take the theory at face value and then just follow the, the prediction of the theory and accept it as fact, I think it's just pretty foolish. And so that that is kind of something what I said in the book, but I think meanwhile, I think it's even gotten better because I think the insight I didn't have in the book was I didn't think of combining the consideration of uh, machine consciousness and animal consciousness together. I think that's really a powerful constraint because I think intuitively a lot of people are very likely to want to grant consciousness to animals pretty liberally. Mm -hmm. So if you ask most people whether a rodent is conscious, most people would say yes. And in fact, some people might think even fish and you know lobsters and insects are conscious. I think a lot of people seem to be inclined to want to believe that. At the same time, if you really look at an AI and ask them what is conscious, many people would think no, um, especially if it's really simple. So current, like the, the, the last few months, quite a lot happened in the AI world. So some people might mm -hmm. have changed their mind. But if you go back half a year ago or one year ago, most people would think the current AI is not conscious. Or if you go back even a decade ago, right, conscious AI a decade ago was pretty primitive. And pe most people say they are not conscious. But I think if you are, if you're a funk, if you if if you are a computational neuroscientist or even a modern neuroscientist, you, you should realize that you know the brain. The best way to understand the brain is that it does computations and 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 basically is a is a is a kind of carbon-based information processing machine. So to the extent that you think an animal is conscious and a, and and a, and a robot is not, there shouldn't be double standards between them. Mm -hmm. So whatever standard there are. It, the animal is conscious not because it's furry and, and cuddly and, and all that, right? It's because it, its brain does certain computations mm -hmm. and it will be the same for the robot. So once you align them, if you, if, you, if you want a theory to say something consistent about robot consciousness and, and animal consciousness, you realize that it really becomes a very powerful constraint as to what your theory should be. Because if your theory said, you know, any kind of broadcast of information was, is conscious, then you would end up saying that the internet is conscious. Hmm. Uh, and that would be kind of, maybe not just the internet, even a small internet would be conscious. Even just some logic gates hooked up together would be conscious. And that would be pretty obviously not so good for the theory. But on the other hand, if you want to say that, well, it has to be really sophisticated to be conscious, it has to be even more intelligent than human or something like human intelligence level for, for the AI to be conscious. Well, then you will be saying that even monkeys may not be conscious. and that would seem to be not what most people want to go into. So I think making, making people, making, making theorists commit to saying what, and what kind of animals and what kind of machines are consciousness is a very good way to, you know, shoot down some of these theories as non-starters. And I think that's very good because we really have too many theories out there. Mm -hmm. But uh, with the information we have at this point in time, do you think that it is it would be rigorous for someone to make any concrete claims about specific animals having or lacking 
consciousness? Do you think that's possible? I think absolutely not. I think the, the answer is absolutely not. And I, I would call, I would, I, I think if you actually spell out the logic behind it, it's actually quite blatantly unscientific because we just really don't know. And, and, but the problem is many scholars actually have been extremely keen to make these claims without any scientific evidence whatsoever. Uh, and, the, and the logic of the argument usually is extremely poor and people are willing to make these claims very strongly just using the professional authority. And I think that's just, just, just ludicrous. Uh, and so you've also mentioned AI there, and earlier I've asked you, of course, uh, what we can learn about consciousness from AI research. But uh, from what we know, do you think that it is possible for computers or robots to be or become conscious? I think it's a very useful exercise to try to think it through. And I think many people have complained, like when you when people talk about that, usually the definitions are not very clear. I mean, the definition about subjective feelings, obviously, mm -hmm. does not seem to be very useful if you really want to engineer soft, a piece of software that, that would have consciousness. So you really want to at least flesh out what, what we mean um, in, in fairly clear computational terms. And I think it can be done. Um, and in some ways, part of the, the, the attempt of, of perceptual reality monitoring is to try to do that and try to say, well, if you really want to think deeply about what having subjective feelings means in computational terms, it seems to come down to two things, right? Just that you, you, you have sensory signals mm -hmm. that, that are what we call self-asserting. The, the sensory signals seems to present themselves to you as if they are basically prima facie, on the face of it, they are correct, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's different from other kind of thoughts. So if I, if I think that today is Tuesday, um, then, I, then I realize that no, but I'm, I look at my computer and I talk to you and I ask my friends, and say, even though today is Sunday, then I would ultimately think, oh, so my thought is just, just wrong. So I'll just discard that. I have no problem discarding that thought. But I think for a conscious experience, they are much more stubborn. So if you have a headache, no matter how much you know MRI and how much medical evidence you gather and, and convince yourself that your head is fine, you, you will still have the headache. So I think so. I think that's one property. So you, you need sensory signals that are somehow self-asserting, that it just asserts itself as true. It doesn't mean that you have to believe it, but even when you don't believe it, it doesn't go away. Right. Um, and I think that's one important aspect. And you can you can think of engineering that in some AI. That that doesn't seem difficult. Um, and then the other aspect is that the, um, the, the relevant sensory signal is subjectively qualitative. That means that it is qualitative in the sense that it's kind of in some sort of analog-like format that you can, compare, you can compare the signal with other signals. So red, for example, is not just categorically different from blue. It has a certain similarity to blue that is not as similar to pink, right? So red is more similar to pink than to blue. So there are some, some of these graded similarity similarity judgments that you can make. So we can call it qualitative. And this qualitative information is subjective in the sense that it concerns not just world knowledge, right? It's not that pink, red is not similar to pink because we know that this is how, you know, the color works in the world. With red is similar to pink to me because it looks similar to me, right? So um, a case in point is I'm actually somewhat um, mildly 
uh, red green color blind so red is also similar to brown to me and I know that it may not be true for you, it may not be true for other people. So, so the qualitative information has to concern about your own perceptual processes. So that's one way is subjective. And the other way is subjective is this information is always available to you as well. So it's, it's not just the information is there in my brain, it's also available to, to your reasoning. So if you define consciousness in, in some way like what I described above, you would basically quite easily be able to conceive that you can basically almost engineer this today in, in today's technology, by today's technology. And I think that's a useful thing to do. Um, and then some people would say, oh, but, but they still don't think that the, the, um, the robot or, or the, the, the AI engineer this way will be conscious. And I think if in that case, they should really ask what makes them think any other animals are conscious. Mm -hmm. if, if they just try not to have double standards there, I think that would be a very useful thing for, to have them think through what, what they mean by saying that something is conscious. Yes, and, and I think that perhaps this also puts into perspective some of the issues we've been discussing here because, I mean, uh, there are people that perhaps would say or claim that uh, consciousness can only be carbon-based and not silicon-based, to put it in somewhat simplistic terms. But I mean, that's sometimes looking at consciousness as a sort of property that in particular cases might get pretty close to a dualist approach to the mind where consciousness is sort of a property that sits above all the, the rest that is occurring in the brain or in the mind, but through a cognitive neuroscientific perspective and particularly looking at consciousness uh, computationally, that it makes much more sense that it can also uh, operate in silicon-based systems or any other kind of systems where the same computations can occur. Correct. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I, I don't think it's just a feature of, of being a taking a cognitive neuroscience approach. I think it's just, I, I would just call it a scientific approach because if you think about biology, this is how it works in general, right? So if you try to understand any biological function, any biological mechanism, you will understand it mechanistically. You would try to think, yeah. okay, so double helix structures help you to carry genetic information. But it's not magic, right? I mean, the, the, the understanding of the mechanism is that, well, it, it mechanistically does these things to these molecules. And, and, and so, therefore, if you can think of an equivalent mechanism that functionally do the same, it should do the same thing. It doesn't have to be double helix, right? It just happens mm -hmm. that in, in our kind of bodies, in our kind of um, biological makeup, we, we use this double helix structure. But you should, once you understand the mechanism, you should be able to conceive of an alternative implementation. Maybe, maybe it's very difficult to do in reality, mm -hmm. but so long as you, you think of a, a, a mechanism that, that functionally does the same thing, it should yeah. do the same thing, right? So maybe, maybe genetics is a little bit harder to think about, but like, for example, the heart is very simple, right? We understand the heart is a pump, right? It's a pump that pumps blood around. So once mm -hmm. we understand it, we can think, well, if you, someone engineer a pump, that exactly has the same hydraulics and mechanics. It should be able to replace your heart. So right. therefore, there's nothing about the heart that is this shape and this, you know, is made of meat and all this. It doesn't have to be 
anything that functionally does the same job should be considered a heart, so you can have artificial hearts. Mm -hmm. So likewise, we should be able to have artificial organs for consciousness. Mm -hmm. So earlier, I've asked you, for example, about uh, approaches to, consci to consciousness that are physics-centered. Uh, I would like to ask you now about how do you look at the relation between uh, a cognitive neuroscientific approach to consciousness and the approaches to consciousness we see in the social and the clinical sciences. I mean, how do you look at the relation there and what do you think are the main differences? I think the main difference is we are most of the time concerned with different phenomena. Mm -hmm. So the, the so-called cognitive neuroscience, the non-physics or the basically the scientific approach to study subjective experience, the mm -hmm. biological approach is, is to think of it as think of the mechanism, the functions, and then understand the information processing. But we are concerned with the mechanism that give rise to subjective experience, mm -hmm. or the, the mechanisms that that that, that support neural processes that come with subjective experience. But I think for the clinical and for the social sciences, they are mostly concerned with a different notion of consciousness. They are mostly concerned with controlled versus automatic processes. Mm -hmm. They are not so concerned with having subjective experiences. So if you actually think about Freud and all the psychoanalysis um, and, and also in social sciences, we think about um, Marxist theories and all of that. They're usually talking about consciousness as in rational controlled processes mm -hmm. and non-conscious processes or unconscious. They mean things that are not controlled and, 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 and um, yeah, they're automatic. And, and, and pre-reflected. And I think that's what they mean. So that's why in the social sciences, in that literature, many people would say that affects, that emotions are by definition non-conscious, which causes all sort of confusion because in, in our field, like people like Joseph Ledoux, whom you also interview, they would think consciousness is decidedly conscious. Oh, sorry, emotions are decidedly conscious. Yes. And you might think that what are these people, they're basically talking past each other, but they're talking about different notions of consciousness. So I think that's the that's that's something we touch on in the in the book chapter eight I think yeah. Mm -hmm. So in a way, sometimes you think uh, social scientists uh, and clinical scientists uh, might be connecting consciousness to free will in a way. I mean, what what's conscious way, is, yeah. what's conscious is what we have under our control. I think that's to some extent it's true, yeah, to some extent it's true, yeah. yeah. So, um, so we're reaching the end of the interview, but uh, I would Thank like you. to ask you about the hard problem of consciousness. So the several philosophers try to tackle this issue. Do you think it can be approached scientifically? Do you think that the hard problem of consciousness can also be a scientific problem? I used to think so. Mm -hmm. um, I used to, I mean, I got into, I mean, like, like many people of kind of my, around my age, who got into this field, I think they, they got into the field because of, of the hard problem and they wanted to tackle it scientifically. I think that's all very good. And I used to think that we can make progress there. 
but I think this now that I understood much more about the sociology, understand much more the sociology of the field, I've, I've become a bit less optimistic. Hmm. I think the problem is the people who believe that there's a hard problem, some of them really want so badly for them for, for there to be a hard problem that, that cannot be tackled. I mean, this is part of what kind of, this is kind of their business, right? <laughs> so, and they tend to end up, some of them end up wanting to support the less rigorous science in the field. Um, it's actually a very interesting problem. So to me, that there's a hard problem. Conceptually, it's just very hard to see how, um, you know, you can have information processing that give rise to subjective experience. Mm -hmm. But as the science progress, we, the models get better, the predictions get better, you know, people's intuition change. You would expect, that's what I was hoping, that you, you do the science better and eventually people would just accept that, oh, our intuitions are wrong. So it turns out that having consciousness is nothing more than, for example, what I described. I'm not saying it would be true, but maybe eventually our, our intuition change as, as the science get better. We accept, oh, consciousness is just having signals that are self-asserting and qualitative subjectively. And, and, and we can even write it down in computer program and everyone's eventually agreed that, okay, so if you, if you design robots like that, then they will be conscious and animals who have these algorithms in the, in the brain have these computations will be conscious. And everyone agrees and eventually the, the hard problem sort of dissolves mm -hmm. because intuitions change as the science change. I mean, that, that's been true in many other fields of science, right? In the beginning, New Newtonian physics was considered very spooky because, you know, where, where this, where's the mechanism and, and a lot of people grudgingly accepted those laws. But, but as those laws come around and people's intuition also change. So I thought that would be the case, but I don't think it would really happen anymore because the people who believe in the hard problem really want so badly for there to be a hard problem because that's, that have become their identity. I think they, especially in the last 10 years, I've seen that they almost like, they are very keen to support less than good science, to make sure that the scientific field would be kind of kept in sort of chaos so that the hard problem would stay. I think it become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that is kind of disappointing and maybe interesting from a sociological perspective. But uh, apart from those I, I would say sociological issues. Do you think that there's any way or there could be any way of scientifically reframing the issue and tackle it? Totally. I mean, that's how, that's how it happened for most of these challenging things in, in biology, right? So life, you know, we used to think vital forces. If you keep looking for vital forces, you wouldn't find them. But eventually the biologists came around and said, well, this is a list of things that, that basically is equivalent to the concept of life. And, 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 and as the science gets so good, then people just accepted that list of things. It's not an elegant solution. I mean, I don't think the problem of life has been solved by some logical puzzle to just click and then it is solved, but more like a slow progress that we, okay, we find out that we understand genetics, we understand um, metabolism, digestion, and etc. So we understood all these like a list of things that we think, but that's basically equivalent to life. And eventually, the, the life problem just is solved. Nobody in biology now still try to look for the vital forces. What I worry is, so I think this is a totally good solution, as a ghost good scenario. But what I worry is, in the case of consciousness, there will ever be some people who would insist on looking for the vital forces because that's their business, and they would not give up so easily. 
Great. So, uh, Dr. Lau, uh, just before we go uh, apart from the book, which is, again, In Consciousness We Trust, and I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. So, uh, I'm Hakwan Lau, one, one word. And I also want to say that my book is, although I disappoint you, that is a book that is written mostly for researchers. There's a good thing, which is the book is free. So it's because it is not written for the public. I also don't intend to make any money off it. So you can actually go to the Oxford University Press website and just download the book. So it's actually open access. Um, so that hopefully helps. Yes, I'm also leaving some other links to your work in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much for accepting the invitation and taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really fun too. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you liked it, please do not forget to like it, share, comment, and subscribe. And if you like more generally what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You, get, you have all of the links in the description of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perergo Larsen, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Ruinacio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Triago Dunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Librand, John Linear, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tam Amal, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Stasevski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Lalitska, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Giorgio Stéphanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Olozen, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amory Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dealey Jr., Holt Erickbud, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassis, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Manuel Oliveira, Kimberly Johnson, and Benjamin Galbart. A special thanks to my producers, these are Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.